0: Good evening, brothers and sisters. I am delighted to see some of you here in person. I can always count on some of you to be here. The Widhowers, thank you very much. And I'm thankful as well for all of you who are online tuning in to our annual Christmas Eve service. I hope and pray that you are filled with great joy during this most wonderful time of the year. This past year has been a very distressing and challenging year for many of us. So let us turn away from the many troubles and sorrows of this life and fix our eyes upon Christ Jesus this evening and this hour because in him and him alone are peace and joy everlasting. I'm on minute restriction, so let me pray for us and we will dive into the text. Let's pray. Lord, my only desire now is to, to preach your word and the, the truth. I pray that you, your glory will be greatly magnified and your Son, Jesus Christ, will be set forth. Accomplish these things for your glory, I pray. Amen. My goal for this evening is twofold, very simple. Number one, I want to illustrate the plain truth and teaching of the Scriptures that God has become man in the person of Jesus Christ. And goal number two, I want to answer the question, why did God become man? I think most of us in this church know that Christmas is less about family reunion or gift exchange, but ultimately about the incarnation of the Son of God, about God becoming a man. But do you know why it is necessary for God to become man? That's the question I will attempt to answer tonight, and I will do so through the lens of a prominent Old Testament prophet. So if you have the physical copy of the Bible with you, please turn to Isaiah chapter 49, verses one 1- through seven, which you can find on page 609 of the Pew Bible. Isaiah chapter 49, verses, will be in verses 1 through 7. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Let me read for you the text, and please pay attention to every single verse, because this is the word of God. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples of, uh, from afar, The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, in the shadow of his hand he hit me. He made me a polished arrow, in his quiver he hit me away. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yes surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Let's begin with verse 1. Look at verse 1. Listen to me, o coastlands, coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. In this verse we see first a call to pay close attention like a student listening to the instruction of his teachers and professors, a child taking heed of the counsel of his parents, we must come to this passage with utmost attentiveness and concentration. So I implore you to keep track with me for the next 25 minutes. I promise that your soul will be very much refreshed by the word of God. We also see in this verse, verse 1, that this is a call for all to hear, even those who dwell in the coastlands or peoples from afar. This message is for you to hear and to understand. If you are in Christ today, this message should not be too too familiar or boring for you. If you are apart from Christ tonight, this message is not irrelevant and and, and, and inapplicable to you. Come, all ye faithful, joyful, and triumphant. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy. This message is for you and for me. And lastly, according to verse 1, There is someone we must listen to. There's a person we must listen to. Listen to me, O coastlands. Who is this person that we must listen to, that we must pay our utmost attention to? The ESV has conveniently titled this passage for us, The Servant of the Lord. And it is to this person we must listen. And I want to draw your attention to three things we we can know about him from the text. First, the person of the servant. Who is this servant? And what can we know about him from Isaiah 49? Secondly, the purpose of the servant. He is a servant. He serves someone. He serves an important purpose. What did he accomplish? And how did he accomplish his purposes? And lastly, the praise for the servant. A servant who faithfully serves and carries out his master's purposes is to be greatly honored. So we will conclude with the exaltation of this servant before the Lord God and his people. So three simple points for you tonight. First, the person of the servant, then the purpose of the servant, and lastly, the praise for the servant. So I encourage you to follow the outline, the bulletin, as we work through the text. So let's now begin with point number one, the person of the servant. There are two crucial things we can learn from Isaiah's prophecy about the servant, the first of which is the deity of the servant, the deity of the servant. Continue in verse one the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. I'm claiming that from this very verse, we can establish that the servant is not only a man born of a woman, but also God himself in his being an essence. Let's work through this verse. So according to verse one, the servant was called and named by God. Being called by God before birth is definitely a sign of God's special grace, but it is not sufficient to show or establish the deity of the servant. God has called David, Psalm twenty-two, verse nine. Yet you are He who took me from the womb. You made me trust you, trust you, and my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb, you have been. My God, God has called Jeremiah before his birth. Jeremiah one five. before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God has called the apostle Paul before his birth. Galatians one fifteen. but he had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace. So the point is, this anointed servant is called by God before his birth, and it does prove his special status In the history of salvation and redemption and that's why he is called a servant of the Lord he's pretty special but it is the names with which God named him that set him apart from all the other consecrated servants God had ever raised up names have meanings names tell us who we are most of you know me as Peter But my legal name, my Chinese name, is Bo Yao, which consists of two Chinese characters. Bo means the firstborn or the best, uh, both of which are true of me, certainly. And Yao is an ancient ruler in China, which means one day I'll be the ruler of my household. So the point is, names equal identities. Now, what are the names of the servants? Let's just consider a few. First, the servant's name is Jesus, Luke one thirty one. The angel Gabriel appeared to Mary saying, "And behold, you will conceive in your in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." And again, Matthew 121, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, "She, referring to Mary, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." And I argue from this verse, Matthew 121, that contains the most plain and clear proof of the deity of Christ. The name Jesus, or Jesus uh, comes from the Hebrew name Joshua, or Yehoshua, uh, which simply means Yahweh is salvation, or Yahweh saves. But verse 21, Matthew 1, 21, he, referring to the child conceived in Mary's womb, he will save his people from their sins. The entire Old Testament builds up this expectation that God will be the Savior of of his people. He will be the one that brings salvation to the world. But in the very first chapter of the New Testament, we come to see that the child born in this Christmas season will be the one saving his people from their sins. So it could not be more clear from Matthew 1.21, from the very name of Jesus, that he is Yahweh, or God himself, in the flesh. Next time you talk to someone who denies the deity of Christ, Take him to Matthew one twenty one because the very name Jesus is the undeniable proof of the deity of Christ. We also know that the servant's name is Emmanuel, Matthew one twenty three. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Again, Matthew is crystal clear about his intention. The name of the child tells us his divine nature. He is called Emmanuel, and his birth is nothing short of God with us. You remember the passage where Jesus said in John 2, 19, destroy this temple, the temple in Jerusalem, and in three days I will raise it up. And then in verse 21, he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now, the temple of the Old Testament is a religious center of Israel. It is also the the place for sacrifice. But most fundamentally, the temple is a place is the presence of God on earth. It is the meeting place between God, and man. Now, by calling himself the temple, Jesus is claiming to be Emmanuel, the one through whom man approaches God, the one in whom God and man are perfectly united as one. Person. The servant, Emmanuel, is truly God and truly man, truly divine and truly human. So one brief application. Are you with family this Christmas season? Forget not that the true meaning of Christmas is not our families, but God with us. Are you alone this Christmas season? and your loneliness, forget not that the greatest comfort for you, for your heart this season, is God with us. Have you lost someone to sickness and disease this past year? Are you suffering and dying? Remember, brothers and sisters, God with us is the most powerful comfort in our life and death. Remember, God has come to be with us this Christmas season. How else was he called at his birth? He is called the Son of God. Luke 1.35 Gabriel spoke to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. This is no son of God like angels are the sons of God. This is a divine, natural, and eternal son of God who is now conceived or taking upon human flesh by the Holy Spirit and the power of the Most High. This is the son of God who according to Hebrews 1-2 is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint Of his nature this is the son of God of whom John writes we are in him who is true and his son Jesus Christ he is true God and eternal life this is the son of God who is equal with the father and united as one with him the servant who is called by the name of the son of God is himself the image of the invisible God in whom the fullness of deity dwells and that is the first thing we know about this servant, God's anointed one from Isaiah chapter 49. Through the various names by which God has named him, we know he is both truly divine and truly human in his nature and essence. And now, whenever we talk about the, the anointed servant in Isaiah or the incarnation of the Son of God, we must not forget another significant point, which is the humiliation of the servant in theology, we speak of the two states of Christ: the state of exaltation, which is which we celebrate uh, on on the resurrection Sunday or every Sunday, and the state of humiliation to which we shall turn right now. The humiliation of Christ does not simply refer to his shameful humiliation at the cross, though that's, that's certainly part of it. Christ's humiliation refers to his setting aside of his divine glory and majesty and his submission, the satisfaction of the curse and the demand of the divine law. In other words, the humiliation of Christ does not begin at the cross, but at his birth, it continues throughout his life and it culminates in his death. And burial. So let's now get into some of the specifics of Christ's humiliation by looking at our text in Isaiah 49. First, Christ Christ lived in a world cursed, tainted, and corrupted by sin. In high school I really wanted to come to America because it is a land of the free, not free education but freedom in general. I paid a lot for for my education and when it came to choosing a school I picked Cornell because it has a beautiful campus in upstate New York, where gorges run through the campus and the beauty of nature is within my grasp. When couples get married, I assume most people do not want to come to New York City for honeymoon, but they will go to Bali or Hawaii or the Caribbean. Why? Well, it's pretty simple, right? No one wants to come to a filthy and repulsive place and ride dirty subway trains. Pretty simple. But when it comes to Christ, we always need to remember that Christ did not come into the garden of Eden or the consummated heaven, new heaven and new earth. He was born into a world polluted and stained by the wickedness and evil of men. Where do we see that from our text? Verse 4, Isaiah 49, verse 4. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Does this sound familiar? Well, yeah, Ecclesiastes two twenty-two. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Have you lost any sleep over your work? What an accurate description of our work life. Why does this? Why why does all this happen? Well, it happens because of Genesis 3. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. Sin makes our work both fruitless and frustrating. And even when the Son of God entered into this world as Jesus Christ, he was not free from all the fruitlessness and frustration of work. With all his might and strength, he preached He preached day in and day out the gospel. With all his energy and vigor, he fought off the devil and his temptations. With, with all his care and kindness, he instructed and trained his disciples. And what was the result of his ministry? The Pharisees accused him of being demon-possessed. The crowd eventually deserted and abandoned him. And the disciples he trained up ran for their own lives. At his arrest. When Christ Jesus came into this world, he came into our suffering. He experienced our temptations, and he partook in our weakness and frailty. But there is more. Verse 7. Isaiah 49, verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. The world Jesus was born into was not only a place of sin and evil, but a place of hatred and hostility toward him. He was hated by the Jews. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He was mocked by the Romans, and Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. He was rejected by the Gentiles. In the country of Gadarenes, where many Gentiles lived, after Jesus healed a demon-possessed man, All the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, what did they do? They begged him to leave their region. In fact, Jesus was so hated and abhorred by the world that they unanimously, with one voice and one heart, voted to crucify him on the cross. So that from his birth to his death, from the first moment of his life to the last on the cross, Jesus' entire life, is marked uniformly by emptiness and humiliation. Now, the natural question is, if the servant is is the omnipotent and almighty God himself, if he has all the power and authority in heaven and earth, why, why does he so willingly and gladly live in a world ruined by the curse of the fall and populated by hateful sinners? If he is so loved, he is so praised and worshipped in heaven. Why? Why coming to this world that hates him? Point number two, the purpose of the servant. He has a purpose. Every job requires us to fulfill certain responsibilities, right? The job of the anointed servant of God, the Messiah in Isaiah 49, is no exception. When the servant was in the world, he accomplished many things. But we are going to focus on, on two purposes found in Isaiah 49, our text. First... Purpose number one, he came to glorify God. He came to glorify God. We have been, uh, we have been identify, identifying the servant in Isaiah 49, Jesus, the Son of God, the Emmanuel. But look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Why is the servant called Israel? Aren't we talking about Jesus Well, the answer is found in the mission or the purpose of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Out of his sovereign love and compassion, God chose Israel as his people for the specific purpose of glorifying himself. He got glory over Pharaoh through the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. He built the temple in the midst of Israel where his glory may dwell on earth. He commanded the nation of Israel to obey God's majesty and splendor through them. Psalm 22, 23, uh, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you, you offspring of Israel. So Israel's mission is to glorify God in the Old Testament. In fact, that's not just God's mandate to ancient Israel. It is God's mandate upon all of us. Remember, what is the chief end of man? Well, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him Forever. Jonathan Edwards wrote a famous treatise called The End of, uh, For Which God Created the World, the end, of, uh, the end For Which God Created the World, in which he said, uh, the, the design of the Spirit of God is not to represent God's ultimate end as manifold, but as one. For it appears that all that is ever spoken of in the scripture as an ultimate end of God's works is included in this one phrase, the glory of God. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And the Apostle Peter puts it this way. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. The chief end of our lives is to glorify God. Now, if you remember your Old Testament, you know that Israel abandoned God, their savior and king, pursued foreign gods, and bowed down before idols. Instead of glorifying God among the nations with obedient worship, the scripture says to Israel, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And if we remember our own lives, uh, we should all know and acknowledge that that we have abandoned our God, Savior, and King. We have pursued the selfish desires within, that we have bowed down before the things of the world. The name of God is blasphemed in the world because all have sinned. You and I have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that is where Jesus came in. Israel failed to accomplish this great mission of honoring the Lord among the peoples of the earth, but the Father was perfectly glorified through the Son incarnate, Jesus Christ. So how does Jesus glorify God? Jesus glorified God by obeying his word perfectly. John 17 verse 4, I glorified you on earth. How? Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Nothing brings God more glory than holiness and obedience. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus glorified God by preaching the truth and making God known. And that's what verse 2 in our text means. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hit me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hit me away. The sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth is the gospel of the kingdom he declared and defended. Calvin wrote, Isaiah employs a twofold comparison, that of a sword and of a quiver, in order to denote the power and energy of doctrine. And he shows why he was called namely that he may preach and teach Christ hath therefore been appointed by the father, not to rule by the force of arms to make himself an object of terror to his people, but by, but his whole authority consists in doctrine in the preaching of which he wishes to be sought and acknowledged for nowhere else will he be found using Jesus own word in John eighteen thirty-seven, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Jesus glorified God by witnessing and preaching the truth. And Jesus glorified God by dying on the cross for our failures to glorify God. After Judas left uh, to betray Christ in, in John 13:30, Jesus immediately said in John 13, 31, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified. In him jesus death is the final act to glorify god which leads us to the servant's second purpose because jesus death brings salvation and restoration to the end of the earth back to isaiah 49 verse 5 he who formed me from the womb to be his servant to bring jacob back to him and that israel might be gathered to him. Verse 6, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Israel needed to be brought back because it has gone astray into idolatry and immoralities. You and I needed to be brought back and restored to God because we have likewise wandered away from the God of life and light. None of us were born with knowledge and faith in God. All of our hearts are naturally filled with all kinds of sinful inclinations. Listen to Jesus. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Does Jesus' word characterize your heart? If you closely examine yourself, do you see some of these things Jesus named in your very own heart? If so, then you need to be rescued immediately because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Because God is good and holy, who tolerates no sin, nor condones any iniquities, his anger is soon to come to consume unrepentant and apathetic sinners. And that is where Jesus comes in. He glorifies God through his death. He magnified God's steadfast love and tender mercy toward poor and miserable sinners by taking our place on the cross, enduring the wrath of God due to our sinful rebellion and suffering the capital punishment we rightly deserve. And this is precisely why the eternal and divine servant and son of God needed a body. He needed a body so that it may be, it may experience the curse of sin. He needed a body so that he may bear our sins on the cross and absorb all the wrath of God against us. He needed a body so that he may taste death for all and atone for all our wrongdoings and sins and rebellions against God and that we may find new life in his death. He needed a body so that salvation of God from God will advance and reach to the end of the earth. He needed a body because he must accomplish for man what he cannot accomplish as just God. Now listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones. The son of God became man, that the children of men may become children of God. God has made us his children, sons and daughters for his glory, prodigal sons and daughters. We have all gone too far from home, from the God to whom we rightly belong. Let's return to our heavenly father, with repentance and faith through jesus christ our lord first peter 2:25. for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul let's now briefly consider and conclude with the last point point number three the praise for the servant as we have established above before god will repay evildoers and unbelievers for their sins in the same way god will reward those who faithfully serve him and glorify his name. The same way God will do that work to the servant here in our text in Isaiah 49, 1 through 7. Let's briefly consider how the servant will be praised. So number one, the praise of the servant shall come from God himself. The servant knows very well that his Lord and God will honor and glorify him greatly. Verse 4, verse 4. Surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. And verse six: I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. How does the Lord honor His holy servant Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of God incarnate? The Father honored the Son during His life on earth. He joyfully declared, uh, declared Jesus to be the Son of God, with whom He is well. Please, the, uh, the, the Father honored the Son by his resurrection, Romans 1.4. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The Father honored the Son by his ascension. Before going to the cross, Jesus earnestly pleaded with the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed, and that is exactly what the Father did for the Son. He raised him from the dead, I seated him at the right hand at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now, brothers and sisters, because God honors Christ, you are honored but for God in him. Saints in Christ, your prayers are heard, your praises are accepted, and your future glory is secured. All of this is because the God-man is now seated at the right hand of God, and he is greatly honored and exalted. So in your lowly and mean estate, remember the high station to which God will soon raise you for all eternity. Number two, the praise of the servant shall come from his people. The praise of his servant shall come from his people. We're used to earthly powers and authorities portrayed in the Bible as God's enemies, like Psalm 2.2. The kings of the earth said themselves, and the rulers of the earth take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. But actually... Not all kings and princes are God's enemies. Many rulers in the scriptures and in the history of the church were willing to forsake their sinful ways and, and their idolatry uh, to, to submit themselves to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They firmly believe that they have no authority except that which is given from above. And that, and it's just as Isaiah 49 verse 7, look at verse 7. Like verse 7 says, these kings and princes will praise and prostrate before God's holy servant, Jesus, as his people. Revelation 21, 24, speaking of the new heaven and new earth, by His light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In other words, all the people of God, rich or poor, mighty or weak, from the least to the greatest will sound their praise and raise the son of worship to Jesus Christ. In the life to come, we'll have a very simple occupation forever, for eternity, in the presence of God. We will marvel at the great mystery of the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. We will adore and admire the God-man, Jesus Christ, and we will honor and bless him forever. What we have here tonight will happen forever in eternity. Now, Christ has come down to earth so we may go up into glory with him so let's strive toward heaven and set our minds upon christ more and more brothers and sisters let's come and behold this wondrous mystery in the dawning of the king he the theme of heaven's praises robed in frail humanity in our longing and our darkness now the light of life has come look to christ who condescended took on flesh to ransom us I pray in this Christmas season and all the seasons of our lives, let's unite our hearts and give our wholehearted praise, the Son of God and the Son of Man, let's pray. Lord, you have given us the greatest gift in this Christmas season. There is nothing else we, we would ask you. I simply pray, Lord, that the gift of Christ Jesus, your dearly beloved Son, clothed in frail humanity, taking upon flesh to ransom, and to save us. I pray that he will be at the forefront of our minds and our hearts. May we always remember him, meditate upon him, glorify your name tonight, move and touch our hearts with the truth that you have spoken, we pray. Amen.